you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Philippians as this evening or this morning we uh, conclude our time through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. This morning we'll be in Philippians chapter 4. Think about who Christ is for us. As you think about those things, I, I wonder if in your mind, most of the time, maybe most of this week, is Christ plus something else? Or maybe everything else and no Christ? I wonder if what filters your mind and what fills your mind is what might make your life more complete. You, you ever thought about that? What's the one or two things that would really set you over the top? That would really make life okay for you? Show my age a little bit, but uh, many times growing up, I'd go to my grandmother's house and she only had like four channels, like four, five, seven, nine, twenty, right? And often what you were relegated to was reruns of I Dream Genie, right? Is that the name of it? I Dream Love Genie, yeah, right? It's been a while, right? And, you know, I just re remember, like, man, I wish that I had three wishes to get whatever I wanted. Now, this is in the mind of a 9, 10, 11-year-old. Life wasn't that hard. But I still figured that life could be a lot better if I could add one or two or three more things as a 10 or 11-year-old. You know, that was like more video games, right? More time out without any kind of curfew to come back in the house. But as you progress in life, I wonder if you still wish that there was some dream genie that would grant you three wishes. Because whatever's going on right now isn't enough for you. I wonder if somewhere secret in your heart, you're thinking of something that can be added to your life to make it more complete. Winning that lottery ticket this week. Uh, getting a promotion at your job. Finding someone who might complete you. I wonder what that would be like for you. What would the answer be for a Christian? For a Christian, the answer, what could happen to change your life? What could be added to make you more complete? is absolutely nothing. How can that be possible? Well, that's what we'll consider this morning in our passage. So if you've got your Bibles already open, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find it on page 982. And if you are here this morning and you don't have a Bible of your own that you can easily read and understand, feel free to take that Bible home with you as our gift. Philippians chapter 4. Verses 10 through 23. The Apostle Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought love. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance 
and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credits. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. All the brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits. Here's what I think is the, the main idea, the big idea of Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. And so the main idea of the sermon. Pretty simple. In Christ, we have all we need for all times. In Christ, we have all we need for all times. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul helps us to understand that by directing us to do three things that will serve as the three points of the sermon. Number one, learn the secret of contentment. Learn the secret of contentment. We'll find that in verses 10 through 13. Number two, treasure the eternal value of gospel partnerships. We'll see that in verses 14 through 20. And number three, be encouraged by what the gospel produces. We'll see that in verses 21 through 23. So number one, learn the secret of contentment in verses 10 through 13. Number two, treasure the eternal value of gospel partnerships in verses 14 through 20. And number three, be encouraged by what the gospel produces in verses 21 through 23. First, learn the secrets of contentment. The Apostle Paul begins this ending section of this letter to the Philippian church doing what he's demanded of them, rejoicing in the Lord. Paul commanded them back in chapter 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. And then in our passage last week, in, in chapter 4, verse 4, he doubled down on that command saying, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. But you know, good leaders don't ask more of their followers than they're willing to do themselves. No, they model what they mandate. And so notice here, in his final words to these brothers and sisters, Paul says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord. Greatly now that at length you've revived your concern for me. The apostle himself finds his joy grounded in God. And, and notice the occasion that warrants Paul 
finding more joy, more, more happiness in God. It's the Philippians revived or renewed care for him, which we'll see later in this passage includes financial support. But we should ask ourselves, but why does Paul rejoice in God when it's the Philippians who've given? Right? Why doesn't Paul rather rejoice in and over them? Why, does, why doesn't he express gratitude to them? Well, because Paul sees even their willingness to give as prompted not by some kind of innate desire or virtue of their own, but as prompted and initiated by God himself as part of God's provision for his servant, the Apostle Paul. And Paul rejoices in the God who saves sinners. And Paul rejoices in the God who sustains saved sinners through the giving of other saved sinners who use their resources to support God's people. You see, the more generous people are, the more justified Paul finds his joy to be in the Lord. Their generosity is just a, a kind of front-loaded image of what God is doing behind the scenes. Right? It's the Lord's hand provided. As we saying earlier, all I have needed, yes. thy hand has provided. And thy hand will provide. And none of us have seen God's hand, right? You have never seen a kind of five-fingered divine hand come from heaven to give you what you need. Oh, but we've seen many brothers and sisters who look like us, right? Doing many things like supporting ministry for us. And Paul is thankful. But see how quick Paul is to clear up kind of any misperceptions. First, he wants to clear up any possible misperceptions that he's, he's taking shots at the Philippians for not providing sooner. But yes, he's rejoicing in the Lord now that they've resumed their concern for him. But that's not a kind of veiled dig aiming to guilt them for their negligence or aim to goad them into giving even more. I mean, you ever gotten letters from somebody, right? Updates from somebody. And it's a kind of thank you, but really it's more of a like, what took you so long? Or more of a, yeah, thank you for that amount, but what I really need is much more. Right, Paul understands, that's not a new thing. Paul understands that's kind of human habit to think certain ways. And so Paul makes clear, he tries to clarify at the end of verse 10, you were indeed concerned for me. That was never the issue. You just lacked the opportunity to do what you wanted to do. The desire was there, which is important. And when the chance came to provide for Paul again, they jumped at the opportunity. So I think this is just a good model of not assuming the worst about others. Amen. As we've said many times before, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter from prison. He's in a desperate situation. He could use the support and the provision from friends, financial and otherwise. And when that support didn't come, or when that much-needed support dried up, it would have been easy for the Apostle Paul to cast aspersions as to why. <laughs> they don't really care about me. And then Philippians, just some fair-weather friends. You see, when times are terrible, our thoughts can be even more terrorizing. 
We can conjure up narratives that are nowhere near the truth and that only add to our agony. And many of us make our situations even worse because we allow our minds to make enemies of those who are really for us. And how much better is it to believe the best about others, especially to believe the best about your brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus? They haven't called or checked on me in a while. They haven't sent the usual encouragement or support. That doesn't mean they've lost love for me or that they've abandoned me. I know that they love me. I trust that they love me. I don't doubt their concern or care. There must be some other cause. You, you know, the world might call that kind of thinking. Giving someone the benefit of the doubt. You know what the Bible calls it? Love. Love bears all things. Love believes all things, including the best about your brothers and sisters. Love endures all things, and love hopes all things. Paul wants to clarify that he's not demeaning the Philippians, but rather delighted that they've had an opportunity to do what he always knew they wanted to do, to continue to care for him. But Paul also clarifies that his care didn't ultimately lie in their hands. And that his disposition wasn't tied to their deployment of resources. And so notice how he further explains, starting in verse 11, what he's not trying to do. Look there, verse 11. Paul says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There's a, a kind of concentrated focus on fullness that dominates Paul's mindset. Yeah. He's not speaking out of some deficiency that causes him to complain. His mind isn't on what he's lacking, but on all that he has. In a word, he's content, satisfied, fulfilled. But notice that's not something that's natural to Paul. It's not natural to any of us. Contentment, Paul says, is something that has to be learned, which means that it's not innate or that none of us naturally possess it. For all of us, our focus is first on more and more and more. In fact, contentment is kind of a condition to be critical of, to run away from. Contentment is reserved for folks who don't have no drive, no ambitions, no goals or opportunities in life. Right, they lack creativity. They got to be content. What else they will do? Or contentment is something only ultimately to be found when you found much fortune and much success. Billionaires can be content. Moguls can be content. Taylor Swift can be content. They've got it all. But that's never really the case, is it? There's still a kind of unsettledness that desires and demands more and more and more. I mean, we come out the womb that way, crying until someone serves us. 
demanding the attention of an affectionate and even more urgent, a feeding mother and going into a frenzy when those needs are not immediately met. And you know, that same kind of crying, begging, complaining, fussy attitude that's found as soon as we come out of the womb, well, it carries over and it matures into adolescence and adulthood even. There's a dissatisfaction with things as they are, no matter how good or bad things are. You might be tempted today to excuse your discontentedness, to claim you'd be content if things were better. If you had a spouse, if I had a house in a better neighborhood, if the people in my job treated me better or respected me better, if they paid me more, if I had a less stressful life, if I had a better overall life, then I would be content. Would you really? How are you so certain? I mean, consider that our first parents, Adam and Eve, had everything. They lived in a perfect world and were given incredible freedom and authority to rule and have dominion under God over all things. And yet, they were discontent even in that environment. And yet, they were discontent even in that arrangement. And they sought something different, something more, only to find that it could never fulfill them. You see, contentedness is, is not tied to a set of circumstances or a predicament, but contentedness, like joy or happiness, is tied to and found in a person, Amen. the Lord himself. It's, it's what Paul said, I, I've had to learn in whatever situation, no matter what that situation is, that I am to be content. That's what's expected of us. That's what's demanded of all of us. We are to be content. Contentment is not a nice to have, but rather a must have. Contentment is not something you can optionally decide to add on to your Christian life. Contentment is something of the goal of the Christian life. Why? Because it showcases God's essential goodness and God's essential glory irrespective of any of life's events. I mean, that's God's plan for all his people to display his glory. And one of the chief ways he does that is by his people showing how satisfied we are in him regardless of what happens to us. As one popular preacher puts it, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. But again, that's a learned behavior and mindset. But besides, I hope that that brings you hope. Especially if you're here and you're honest that you're discontent in some way. That's not a status that's okay, but it's okay to admit that that's your status. And to acknowledge with the Bible this morning that you don't have to stay that way. Discontentment is not an unalterable state. You can actually learn how to be content in whatever situation. Paul's learned it, he says, and so can you and I. I mean, his 
personal experience is not to put yours down in comparison, but to pull you up to where he is. To, to pull us up on his level. This is not Paul bragging, yeah, I've learned to be content. What you're complaining about? But Paul is saying, I've learned to be content. And brothers and sisters, you can as well. Remember back in, in chapter 3, verse 17, Paul instructed the Philippian church, and by extension us, to imitate me. Right? Pay attention. Follow the examples of others. And explicitly here, one thing that that means is that we can model, follow the example, imitate Paul in learning how to be content, no matter what comes. But notice here, it's not to be content about every situation. Uh, there's a holy discontentment that's proper and right and that should call out wrongs and things that need to change. If, for example, you're in an, an abusive or unfaithful marriage, or more broadly, as you live in a hostile world, in a society that increasingly dishonors God and his word and his people, you don't need to be happy about every situation. But amazingly, you can learn to be happy, to be contented in every single situation. How can you learn that? Well, it's not through a data dump from reading numberless articles on the internet. You can't learn contentment by viewing over and over and over again YouTube clips. YouTube won't teach you this. Contentment is learned as God teaches you through the experiences of life. In other words, you got to go through some things. Paul says in verse 13, I, I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. This knowledge is an experiential knowledge. And see how broad the experiences are. When, when times are good and when times are bad. When there's much, there's plenty, there's abundance, and when there's little to nothing. When there's hunger and need. And I think it shows us that different people can have different life experiences. One person's life can be bountiful, full of apparent blessings, while another person's life may be full of suffering and sorrow. Even more, I think it shows us that the same person can have different seasons of life over their span of life. Or perhaps you know that yourself. There's seasons of plenty and seasons of lack and of suffering, of struggling. Paul knew both extremes and everything in between. There were times when he was prospering, when he was preaching the word, when he was singing, take root and bear fruit, when he was sustained physically and spiritually. And there were times like where he is now, in prison, cold, hungry, slandered by those on the outside. There were times when he was shipwrecked. There were times where he was beaten by rods. There was times where he experienced famine. There was times where he was stoned. There was times where he says he experienced countless sleepless nights and many hungry days. 
You see, this is not some armchair theologian writing from his perch in a pristine palace. This is a man who's been through some, some high lows. I mean, the Lord showed him the third heaven. Oh, but he's been through some deep, deep lows. He tells us there's a lesson to be learned in every season. In times of prosperity and plenty, God is teaching us contentment. You, you see, success is not pure triumph. Success is also a trial. Prosperity is also a trial. Because when things are good, we're tempted to trust in those things. To allow those things to determine our behavior and our beliefs. I mean, have you noticed that in yourself? When you got some money, you're happier. When your spouse acting right, you're friendlier to everybody. When someone shows you some interest in dating, you're more hopeful. When your life is up, your praises go up. Lord, thank you. Or when your life is up, you don't even tend to think of God as much at all. Prayer and Bible reading don't seem as critical because life is so comfortable. You found rest, but in the wrong things. In the gifts, but not the giver. Are you in a season of plenty now? Your bank account looking good? You got food in the fridge? Your, your friendships are to the max? Everything is going well? Well, no, that's by God's hand. If that's by God's design. That is not purely your enterprise and effort. Your skill and talent, that's by God's design. And know that as God has filled your cup, God is also trying to fill your heart with a lesson on contentment. Just as he's trying to fill your heart with a lesson on contentment in a different season of life. When life is more difficult and times are more dire. But when the money gets low and the hungriness shows, what does it show about you? Are you suddenly then downcast and distressed? Are you irritable and grumpy because life hasn't turned out the way you thought it would turn out? I wonder if that's where you are this morning. With a kind of low-level anger, anxiety, disappointment, simmering. Just waiting to explode. Well, know that God means to instruct you in the season. Because when things are going bad for us, we have those feelings inside. You, you know what we tend to do? Well, we tend to train ourselves into thinking those feelings are justified. We, we try to train ourselves to think that our dissatisfaction is appropriate considering our circumstances. But what we need is to have the mind of Christ and not to think our own thoughts. What we need is a kind of detox so the Lord can put in us what he means to teach us. In these seasons of distress, in these seasons of lack, God is meaning to instruct you. His hand has not left you. And no, he's put you in the school of contentment as well. He wants you to learn something better. The, the mystery, yeah. the secrets yeah. of contentment. And what is the secret? Right? I love the Bible, right? It does not keep secrets undisclosed. What is this secret? Well, verse 13. 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, this might be the most misused verse in all the Bible. It's probably one of the most popular verses in all the Bible. You got John 3, 16, right? You got Matthew 7, 1, judge not, right? We, 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 and, and then we got, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's so misused, we, we need to kind of detox from everything we've heard about it. I mean, it's been used by politicians as the basis for the belief that they will win this election. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's been used by countless parents and teachers to motivate children to do everything from learn how to tie their shoes or to ride a bike uh, to master their math homework. It's been used by countless athletes, right, as the motivation for why they will win a title. I mean, one of the most famous basketball players on the planet and the best basketball players on the planet has I can do all things written on every pair of his shoes that he wears for every single game. He's really good. But is it, is it because this verse is written on his shoes? You see, the key to understanding the Bible is context. And in context... The all things that God in Christ by his spirit strengthens his people to do is not every conceivable thing or goal or activity there is to do. But rather, it's God causing you to endure all kinds of situations, any and every circumstance with a deeply rooted delight in the Lord and not in the circumstance. Is God allowing you in whatever comes your way, in whatever situation, to remain committed to him and trusting in his care and his provision and his love and his fidelity, even in the midst of both abundance and in the midst of need? I, I can go through anything at any time because I never go through it alone. He is always with me. His Power working powerfully in me, through me, to persevere through anything with hope and joy. Amen. Amen. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, none of that information is new. Yeah. You believe the Lord is powerful. You believe that the Lord is with you. You believe that the Lord is working powerfully in you. You know all those things until you don't. Until that specific situation comes. That has to be the loophole from Philippians chapter 4 verses 11 and 13. You know, that situation can't have this verse applied to it. And until you're in a situation or a season and you, you find yourself looking to your own strength to overcome. It, looking to your own resources to provide for it. Or leaning on other people or leaning on your own provisions. This, this verse, you know this verse, you believe this verse until you, you find yourself faced with, with some hard thing to do for Jesus. And then you find yourself self-selecting, right, how to put yourself in seasons of only abundance and never need. 
I wonder if, if, if that's why many of us, when we hear about taking the gospel overseas to a, a people and a place where it's never been proclaimed, think of that mission as something for somebody else. I mean, my life is, my life is comfortable. I'm well paid. I got a mortgage. I got kids to look after. And certainly, that's not for me. But, but, but do you believe that in any season, in any circumstance, in any difficulty, where we seek to be faithful for the Lord and to the Lord, that he will be with us? And so that we can go through and in any situation? You see, there's a certain amount of risk that's right for a Christian. Risk that trusts Christ's sufficiency. And risk that's a powerful testimony of the to the world that's watching that I am leaning wholly on Jesus. Well, some of you have, have abandoned things that, that seem normal, that seem natural, that seem right in the world's eyes to follow Jesus. We talked about some of that this morning in Sunday school. Some of you have turned down job offers for better money or in different locations to stay in this local church or to serve people in this local church in a way that you wouldn't be able to if you had more hours added to your week. You see, the Christian has a mindset that I don't have to be scared about entering into difficult situations because when I go through those difficult situations, the Lord is going with me. You can exhibit that by going thousands of miles away and rightly telling people the good news about Jesus Christ. You can demonstrate that you trust right, that, 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 that God is strengthening you even in every situation by staying in a church like ours, in a smaller church like ours. You know, life in a smaller church can be a wonderful blessing, and you can't run from nobody, right? You, you kind of got to make relationships. For some of y'all like, that ain't no blessing, right? It can be a wonderful blessing, but it can also present some challenges, Right? I mean, if, if you're in a smaller church, there are less people likely in your stage of life. If you're an unmarried brother or sister in a smaller church, the prospects are dim. If you're looking for fellowship as, as an older Christian with older Christians or as a younger Christian with younger Christians, th those prospects are dim. And you might tend to think, well, I can never be happy staying in a church like that. I think you can. Because it's not your happiness in a church like this. It's your happiness in a God like this. In the Lord who strengthens you to endure every situation. That doesn't mean you have to stay, right, in this local church forever. Or that you have to go do the hardest thing, like go be a missionary. But it means we also shouldn't run from the hard things. It means we can run through and in the hard things, knowing that the Lord is running with us. What this is, is a concrete declaration that every Christian must consistently catechize themselves in. You gotta be constantly kind of preaching to yourself in whatever situation, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Apart from him, I can do nothing, but through him, I can do all 
In verse 13, there's a call to remember the gospel and to act as if it is true. And once we were far apart from the Lord, once we were dead in our sins, we were carried along by every wind of doctrine. We, we had every kind of circumstance of life determining our moods. Right? Once we were dead to spiritual vitality, once we denied God in word and in deed by trying to live independent lives, only to find that we could never possibly be happy without him. And even though we kept seeking satisfaction and enjoyment and contentment apart from him, the Lord didn't say, go eat mud, go keep finding discontentment. The Lord, by his mercy and grace, sent us a savior, his son, Jesus Christ. He loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son, son with whom he was eternally content. There was no discontentment in heaven. The son was like, I got to get out of here. Like, like your teenager might be looking forward to leaving you home. Jesus wasn't looking forward to leaving heaven. He wasn't discontent. He was happy with the Lord. But that happiness overflowed in wanting people like us who are discontent with God to find true contentment in him alone. And so Christ came. And he lived a life leaning on the Lord. He went through life. People were tempting him. Do this, do that. And Jesus said, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? Right? My desire is to do the Lord's will. He lived the perfect life that you and I should have done. And he lived a life dependent upon God, uh, trusting in God, loving the Lord. And then in the greatest act of love ever, he laid down his life. He picked up a cross and he died the death that you and I deserve to die. He died in our place for our sins to reconcile us to God so that we might have our sins forgiven and that we might have our souls satisfied. And he didn't just do that by proxy. Then he went to heaven and he sent his very spirit down to live in us. The same Jesus who loved us so much that he died on the cross for us also loved us so much that he did not leave us alone. The spirit of Jesus lives with and in every single believer. So that every single believer goes through every single second of every single day with God with him. With God working in him to strengthen him, to comfort him, to encourage her, and to satisfy us. We need to learn to look at every circumstance in life, not as, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe God is putting me through this. We need to learn to look at every circumstance in life as God is putting me through this. And God is good. And through Christ, I am his and he wants my good. And he is with me in this, working even in this for my good and for his glory. So that's not mere Christian talk for a Sunday morning. That's biblical reality that we must learn to adopt if we truly seek to be satisfied no matter what comes out. But for a Christian, you can't add anything to make him more happy. And you can't take anything away to steal his joy. Because our delight and satisfaction are in Christ alone. And he will never leave and never forsake us. In him, we have enough. 
All our sins have been forgiven. All God's wrath has been removed. I have access to God both now and forever with an eternal inheritance awaiting. What more do I need if I have him? First, if you're not a Christian this morning, then you don't have this mindset. You can't have this mindset. There's an ongoing kind of anxiety in your heart that you might try to mask with a bunch of other things, but that I know is a reality because you don't have Jesus. You can't have contentment without Jesus. Friends, don't let that remain the case. Have Jesus. He's presenting himself to you this morning. Come, take, eat, taste, and see that the Lord even when life isn't good, the Lord is good. You can have him for yourself. He's come to have you for himself. You can have him for yourself. Repent of your sins. Put all your trust in Christ. Maybe for the first time, lean on the everlasting arms that we sang about earlier. And stop looking to and leaning on other things to provide you happiness. You want to know more about what that looks like? Talk to anybody around you after service. I'll be at the door. We'd love to tell you more about Jesus. If you are a Christian, I pray that Jesus would be our all in all. Pray hard prayers. Prayers that you really don't want to see the exact kind of fulfillment of how they're answered, but prayers that will really help us go through all the life. Pray the Lord would remove any crutch that's keeping us from depending totally on him. Pray the Pray the Lord would not allow us to find any contentment in anything or anyone else besides him. Commit more deeply to pursuing the Lord, to knowing him more deeply and knowing the contentment that he produces more deeply in us. Learn the secret of contentment. That secret is having a deeper and intimate relationship with Christ himself. Secondly, in this passage, we see not only should the, must we learn the secret of contentment, number two, we must treasure the eternal impact of gospel partnership. I, I promise these points will get progressively uh, less lengthy, so don't trip out. We won't be here for two hours. Only an hour and 48 minutes this morning. Okay? So, okay? Number two, treasure the eternal impact of gospel partnerships. Uh, that's quite a different directive for us, isn't it? Uh, for many of us, we, we tend to treasure the treasures. But Paul views treasures, money, gifts, not as things to be held on to tightly, but given away for greater purposes. As well, he's just stated that Jesus is enough for him in every situation. I notice Paul doesn't take a kind of negative view of money as if it doesn't matter. All right, just give me Jesus. No, he acknowledges and is appreciative of the efforts of other brothers and sisters using their hard-earned money to advance the cause of Jesus through the gospel ministry of the apostle Paul. So he says in verse 14, yet it was, even though Christ is enough for me, yet it was kind of you to, to share my trouble, to partner with me in ministry, even when that ministry landed him in places like prison. You know, a lot of people are willing to, to, to give to support ministry just as long as they hear good reports back. Right? When that newsletter comes back from the minister or missionary highlighting that 1,500 converts were made in two weeks. 
12 churches were planted in 12 days. Uh, you figure, oh, I got to keep giving to that. I got to get behind that. The Lord is behind it. I'm willing to give a lot of money towards that effort. But when the reports come back, like the Apostle Paul's, hey, y'all, I'm in prison again. I'm on the run again. I just got beat up for the fourth time for preaching the gospel again. When you hear those kind of reports, the temptation is to pull funding back uh, to, to, to give time and attention and efforts and wealth and resources to someone who's less troublesome, who's more positive in their reporting, who's evidently more fruitful and produces better results. But not the Philippians. They stood by Paul and kept giving him funds to care for him in every scenario. And they've been doing it for a while, even when others weren't. Paul says in verses 15 and 16, you yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. We see a model here of what's good for local churches to do. Give money for gospel ministry. Give money for gospel ministry. But why would churches do that? Because churches themselves are products of gospel ministry. Notice how carefully uh, Paul says that when he left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with them except the Philippians only. Seems like a rather straightforward statement. But, but somewhat hidden in that statement is the massively important fact that when Paul first went to Macedonia, there were no churches at all. There were no Christians at all. And we read about it in places like Acts chapter 16. Paul was the first to go and preach the gospel in Macedonia, this region that included Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. But Paul preached. He went and he proclaimed the gospel and people were converted under the preaching of the word. And when Paul left Macedonia, what was left were not a few random scattered believers in each place, but rather local churches of newly converted believers gathering together to worship God and to go out to proclaim his excellencies in all the world. The gospel births the church. And those churches birthed by the gospel care not only about themselves, but they also want to see other churches birthed by the proclamation of the gospel. So they support gospel ministry in other places and to other people. And that's what the Philippians model. Saints, that's what we are to model. We want to see the gospel go out near and far, both in Temple Hills and PG County and beyond to all the nations. And one of the ways we do that is through our giving of money. The Philippians gave to support Paul to take the gospel near to, to places nearby like Thessalonica and to places far away like where he is now in Rome. 
And that giving helped Paul to stay the course to continue proclaiming Christ when everyone else was pulling away from him. And so does our giving. It helps us to sustain a gospel ministry here in Temple Hills, in this local church, partly through your giving, paying my salary. Praise the Lord for that. I'm thankful for that. And it helps us to advance the gospel to people and to places where our feet may never reach. Supporting other faithful ministries and ministers involved in good gospel work elsewhere. You see, saints, here's the kind of dual kind of paradoxical reality. You can do a lot of ministry with no money. And at the same time, to do a lot of ministry takes some money. And giving money for those purposes has eternal impact. Paul says in verse 17, it's, it's not about the gift. That's not what I'm after. But rather, I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Giving money for the gospel to go out is an investment that will always bring back returns. Amen. Notice Paul trusts that the preaching of the gospel will bear some fruit. And notice that it's not only his account that gets credited. It's not only him that God will be pleased with. Yes, Paul is the preacher. He's the one that's gone out to proclaim the gospel. But just as important are those who sent him out, who supported his going out to proclaim it. And their account is credited as well. As Jesus put it on the sermon in the Sermon on the Mount, the Philippians giving for gospel purposes is laying up treasures in heaven. Their giving is making deposits in an eternal account for which there will be massive rewards. Not just God's blessing, you can take this the wrong way, but even the privilege. Think about this, the privilege these Philippians will have of one day meeting people in heaven for the first time who became Christians when they asked their testimonies, how did you become a Christian? I was over there in Thessalonica building tents. And then this new fellow came by building tents. His name was Paul. And while he was working with me for two straight weeks, he was telling me about this man from Galilee who also worked with his hands. And who at some later time laid down that work and stretched out his hands to die for me. And he told me that that I didn't have to leave my job, but I needed to leave behind my old loves and to cling to a new Lord. And he preached the gospel to me, and the Lord started softening my heart so that by the time that, 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 that man Paul left Thessalonica, I had turned my heart to Jesus, and I walked with him for the rest of my life. And the Lord has welcomed me into his eternal presence. And that man from Philippi says, oh yeah, I know Paul. He came to us too. And, and we gave him some money to go to Thessalonica. We didn't know you then. We didn't know who he'd meet. But we trusted that that mission to take that message of the risen Jesus Christ crucified for us and risen from the grave for us to save us. That message needed to go out so we supported him. What rewards does the Lord have for us? In, in seeing brothers and sisters who have been converted through our ministry of giving. We will be rewarded. The Lord will be 
faithful to us. Everything we do has an eternal impact. Every single thing we do has an eternal impact. From our evangelizing to our prayer lives to our faithfulness in marriage and in our jobs to what we do with our money. Your bank account, your handling of money, what you do this week with your finances has eternal impact. So you can generously give now. Not to see, as some say, how much you can give back now. But knowing you will be rewarded for that. And knowing that God is pleased by our giving. Now look at how Paul characterizes the Philippians' giving at the end of verse 18. It's a fragrant offering. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And if you read some of the Old Testament, that's the same language that, that's, that's used to describe ceremonial offerings that are given by worshipers whose hearts are right with the Lord, whose hearts are set on honoring the Lord. They, 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 they give this lamb or this ram or, or this, or this uh, flower offering, right? They put it before the Lord, and the Bible says that it's a sweet aroma to the nostrils of God. It is, it's pleasing to him. Well, well, friends, we don't need to sacrifice no more lambs and rams, thank God. But we can't sacrificially give. And that sacrificial giving also is a pleasing aroma to God. God doesn't need our money to advance his purpose. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, he tells us. But oh, he's pleased when we don't worship our money but rather use our money to worship him. Wanting his name and his renown to be known throughout all the world and sending our money for that purpose. God is pleased by such such action. And God will sustain us. Look at verse 19. Paul says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You can take this the wrong way. Some, uh, some prosperity preachers falsely promise, right, give to God and he'll give riches to you. Right, they only take this verse to, to, to think about financial prosperity. But many faithful Christians have given much money, much time, much effort, and have found themselves relatively poor in the world's eyes. And no, again, we need to read this passage in context. God will supply all you need, Paul says, in Christ Jesus. And all you need is him. Remember up in verse 11, Paul said, not that I am speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So that in every need, in every situation, God will supply all that we need as well, strength to endure every situation through Christ who strengthens us. We don't need to worry about giving too much or being depleted because God will fill us up. God will satisfy us in Christ Jesus. Certainty of it. The reality of it sends Paul breaking out in praise in verse 20. Uh, he, he moves from kind of doctrine to doxology, right? Praising God in verse 20 to God be glory forever and ever. Amen. Oh, that would be a fitting close to this letter. The Apostle Paul includes a few more verses that I think should equally cause our hearts to sing and to be encouraged and strengthened by what God is doing in and through the gospel, which brings us to our third and final point 
Be encouraged by what the gospel produces. Be encouraged by what the gospel produces. What does the gospel produce? Paul tells us, saints everywhere who care for each other. Paul began this letter addressing it to the saints who are at Philippi. And he ends it sending greeting to every single saint at Philippi. Why every saint? Because Paul marvels at God's grace in every single believer's life. Every salvation is stunning. Every testimony is phenomenal. Once this person was dead in their sins, now they are alive in God. They are set apart now for his purposes. They are holy and sanctified and secure in his sight through the death and resurrection of Christ. And just as stunning is that God saved other people in other places and given them a concern for other Christians. The brothers who are at or who are with Paul in Rome, Paul says, send their greetings to the Philippian church as well. As do all the saints, he says in verse 22, that's a little last phrase, especially those of Caesar's household. Caesar is the emperor of the Roman Empire, the greatest empire in the world at the time. Caesar is the one who demanded exclusive worship to himself. Indeed, during the first century when this book was written, the standard required confession of everyone who lived in the Roman Empire was Caesar is Lord. He suffered no rivals. He discouraged any notions of some worship to some Jesus as Lord. And yet, with all of Caesar's power, he couldn't keep his own workers from the truth. The church of Jesus Christ in Rome, where Paul is, is comprised, he says, even of people from Caesar's household, those who were servants and workers in his house. He says, when this gospel goes out, it always accomplishes something. Far more than anything we can imagine or think. It spread to the Roman guards guarding Paul in prison, and it spread even to the palace where the emperor who gave the orders for Paul to be in prison lived. How encouraging that must have been for the Philippian church who lived in Philippi, which was a Roman province, and who were enduring, as we've seen in this letter, hostility and opposition from those around them. How sweet Paul's final words must have been. How much of a push they must have been. Don't let up, but keep going. God is working in and through you. People once hostile to the gospel can be transformed by the gospel. They become saints like you and join in solidarity with you. It's absolutely amazing, and it's what God is still doing for us. It's what God is still doing through us. We minister and live in a hostile environment. And the Lord is telling us through these last words of the apostle, don't give up. People in, in that political party can be saved. Uh, people in, in that family unit can be saved. Uh, the gospel, when it goes out, will produce results. You keep going and proclaim it. Amen. 
And then his closing benediction. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's both prayer and promise. The Lord who saved us by his grace will continually sustain us by his grace until he returns. And his grace is sufficient for us. In Christ, we have all we need for all time. Heavenly Father, we pray that you help us to believe what we've read and to act on it. Teach us the secret of contentment. Pray in our hearts to go deep with Christ. Know him better. Understand the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. And then so let us go through any circumstance in life with hope, joy, satisfaction, with fulfillment. Because Christ is with us. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for Jesus. And we pray that he would be our all in all. We pray this in his name.